Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. I thought I'd have a bodyguard with me today. <laughs> Mom and dad are on their way back from Indiana where they... Uh, Dad performed a wedding ceremony for my nephew Aaron yesterday, and so um, they'll be back here for tonight. And tonight, uh, Dad kicks off the uh, Sunday seminar, which I believe is back in the chapel. So you want to check that out. That's all in the bulletin. And uh, again, to uh, reiterate, Caitlin said that remember that if you're going to send your kid to VBS, be sure there's an insert in there, but be sure to sign up at the table. Now, the reason I have my much better uh, looking half uh, with me up here is, you know, she does her own women's ministry and you know, the bold movement, and she's done a lot of investigations into what's going on with kids to help moms and grandmas and so forth. So tell them what you found, babe. Hey guys, so um, some startling statistics, as I talked about a couple weeks ago when Kayla did the apologetics graduation. Um, statistics are now showing that eight out of 10 children are leaving the church after graduation. And I think there are some reasons for that. But as far as this goes, um, women make up a majority of the church globally. 80% of the church is made up of women, which is fascinating to me. Um, and then Christian teens primarily seek out mothers' opinions on questions of faith. That's seven out of 10 teens go to their mothers for questions about faith. Seven out of 10 teens go to their mothers for questions about the Bible. And eight out of 10 teens go to their, or go to their mothers for anything that is troubling them. So spiritually speaking, mothers are the ones who are shaping the children in the household. Funny enough, statistically, nine times out of 10, the entire family, mother, children, will follow suit to go to church regularly if the father attends church. So if dad attends church, the family attends church, but the kids are still asking the mothers questions about the Bible. And I've seen this, we're doing a, a study right now on Hosea with the Bold Movement, and it's fascinating because even in Hosea, it shows the influence of a mother. Gomer, Hosea's wife, has children, not my people, um, no mercy, you know, the really good names that God gave them. <laughs> and that was a joke. Okay. It's not funny if you have to tell him to yeah, It's not funny if you have to tell him it's a joke. That is correct. Okay. He told me not to joke, but I get a little, I just mm -hmm. can't help it. So the children follow suit of the mother. And throughout scripture, throughout Hosea, we learn that it's not just a reflection of Gomer representing Israel. Gomer is representing the high priests of Israel, the leaders of Israel. The children are rep representing the common people. And just like the mother influencing the children to turn away from the husband, Israel influenced the common people to turn away from God. Mothers have significant influence on their children, and it is so, so important for women to know what the Bible says and how to defend it because you are the ones who are training the future of the church. Church leadership, church attendees, women are the ones who are shaping them. And I think that's one of the reasons biblical illiteracy is so radically out of control right now. Women get these Bible studies that aren't really teaching them anything except for good morals and how to pray for their enemies, which is great, but we need to know the 
actual meat and potatoes of scripture because we're the ones teaching the children. Good job, Beck. Thank you. And so that's just, I have to tell this is, this kind of segues into what we're doing. What we're doing here really is we want you to have your kids you know, in these programs, learning stuff like Cold Case Christianity for Kids, Case for Christ for Kids, and we want you to be reading the book. We've still got a few books out there, and we want you to be having these conversations with your kids and preparing yourself when your kids or grandkids or whatever have questions about the faith so you can help save their faith, especially if they go off to a secular college. Make sense? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed. My son is at a Christian university. Uh, we wouldn't be able to afford to send him there if he wasn't a much better student than I am. He got, a, he got uh, tu- free tuition. Uh, he goes to Liberty University, but that still means you got to pay for things like food and dorm rooms and stuff like that, and it's expensive, but I'm glad. It's like I don't know of any other film school where a kid's learning to be a filmmaker but also has to take a Bible class every semester. Um, praise God for that. And so we want you to know this stuff. It's important to know this stuff. And here's the thing. A lot of people get intimidated by this, and they're like, it, it, it's too deep. It's too, it's too much. I, I, you know, people's questions, I don't know how to handle them. Here's the deal with, with questions you will get from skeptics, atheists, agnostics, and so forth. Not very well thought out ones. And so you don't really need to be intimidated. The average atheist does not think about this this much. So let me give you an example. Um, we've all had this, where we have either just don't know something, we're not paying close attention to something, or maybe we're just groggy. Now, my beautiful wife, who was just up here telling you all this stuff, you need to know there are two Megans, pre-coffee Megan and post-coffee Megan. Once Megan has had that cup of coffee, it's Megan. She's ready to roll. Until that cup of coffee, it's this Megan. And so, what was it? I guess it was January. Because, see, this is the way it works in our household. Um, The dogs, her dogs, follow her everywhere. Everywhere. She cannot take a step without all three dogs just being right on her. They pay no attention to me, except at the butt crack of dawn when they want food. Then, all of a sudden, they're licking me, they're pawing at me, and all this other kind of stuff. And so I get up, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, whatever it is, I stumble, take them outside, I give them food, I give them water, I sit out in the cold or whatever for a half an hour till they do their business, if you get my drift, and then bring them back inside. And so, you know, I get up, so when that's done, I go in and I watch the news. Megan gets up about an hour later. It's about between 7 and 7.30, she'll come shuffling down the steps, hasn't had coffee. I was watching the news one morning, and it said, Betty White, dead at 99. And I looked up, and I said, Megan, and she's come down, I said, Betty White died at 99. And she goes, from what? (laughs) I said, what's your next question? Do the detectives have any leads? I mean, she was 99. We should all be so lucky, but that was pre-Coffee Megan. Now, my point, and I got permission to tell that story, because I told it last night, and I still got to go to bed. Um, But when you're dealing with a lot of skeptics, they're like pre-Coffee Megan. They haven't thought about it. They've not sit around and thought about, you know, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel writers, all this other kind of stuff. They have not thought about any of the evidence behind Christianity. 
And so you need to know this stuff. Read the book, watch the videos, go over this stuff with your kids. But I'm telling you, you can be confident having these discussions because the average person who's a skeptic has not thought about this at all. And as long as you do it graciously, you can plant that little stone in their shoe that hopefully will grow into faith one day. And that's why we're doing this. Now, as I said last week, because this is kind of, if you, if you were here last weekend, um, this is kind of part due of, of that. This is the sequel. Let's look at some more evidence, because any good investigator, journalist, detective, attorney tells you you have to evaluate the evidence, and you have to do it critically, not just blindly. You have to critically evaluate all of the evidence. First of all, so let's talk about the Bible. What does the Bible say that it is? What does it claim for itself? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul is writing to, uh, as a mentor to young Timothy, and he writes, All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. That means it comes from God. And is useful to teach what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. All Scripture is, literally in the Greek, God-breathed. I want you to do me a favor. What, what does that mean? I want you to take a hand. Go on, take a hand, put it right in front of your mouth, and say, Scripture. You feel that? That's the Greek image that is literally coming from God, not just from people, from God. That's what it claims for itself. Now, one of the objections, though, you'll hear, and usually it's just somebody who heard it from a professor, heard it from somebody else, and whatever, is this. How can you really trust the Bible when we do not have any of the original documents? We don't have 2 Timothy right from Paul. We have copies of it. So how can you be sure? Well, is that a problem? Not at all. There is a field of study called textual criticism, and all these people do. It's part of the discipline of New Testament studies. I've had to take courses on it. I don't want to be a text critic, though. It sounds boring. Any time a new document is found that refers to Scripture, contains Scripture, maybe a, a part of a book of Scripture, any time an ancient one of those is found, it is sent off to different universities, and it is studied. We have, do you know that this is what we have? We have part or all of 6,000 copies of the ancient New Testament. 6,000 ancient copies of the New Testament. And so another objection would be, okay, yeah, all right, you got 6,000 copies, but how much do they differ? Less than 1%. Less than 1%. And even when we do find differences in there, and by the way, this is, for example, this is my Greek New Testament, and this is, as you don't know, New Testament was written in Greek, not King James English. And this is a little book that all New Testament scholars have to have. You see, it's not that big. It lists every single difference in any single copy anywhere in the New Testament. And it lists why the committees who put together this make choices of 
okay, there's a, there's a difference here. Like, and most of the differences are like this. Does it say the disciple? Some ancient copies have a definite article there. It says the disciple. Some of them don't, which would mean a disciple. Well, is it the disciple or a disciple? And believe it or not, scholars will spend hours struggling with this. But it, that's pretty minor, right? That's not going to change the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are not big differences in any of the ancient copies. They, the ancient Christians were so devoted to Scripture, they believed it was so holy, they copied very carefully. And it was all by hand. You remember, the printing press doesn't come along for 1,500 years after the New Testament's written. So everything had to be done by hand. Everything was hand copied. And so that's, they, they were so meticulous that, yes, we can be sure what was in the originals because 6,000 copies all agree with each other. See my point? So, oh, this whole thing, you can't know what they're about. Oh, baloney. And with the Old Testament, those of you who have been to Israel have been out to the Dead Sea and you've probably floated on top of the water because you can't actually really sink into the Dead Sea. And so right there, there was a group of kind of sectarian Jews. And uh, we just know them as those at Qumran. Some call them the Essenes. But they were this sectarian group. And one day in 1947, so a couple years after the end of World War II, some Arab kid is playing, you know, soccer or something like that and kicks a ball into a cave and goes in there and finds all these jars. Inside of those jars are what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are first century, more than 2,000-year-old copies of the Old Testament, including commentaries on the Old Testament. And guess what it looked like? A 2,000-year-old Old Testament looked just like your Old Testament. Pretty good evidence, right? So you can be sure the Bible you have, yes, is the Bible. Every once in a while, even in your study Bibles, you'll see a little note. Some ancient copies do not contain this line or whatever. And that's what it's talking about. Because we've got so many copies, we're like, well, this copy goes back 1,600 years, and it has this line in it. And this one goes back 1,550 years, and it doesn't have that line. What do we do? We just put a little note in your Bible and say, eh, Make sense? I'm going to take that as a yes and move on. Another objection is that we have no evidence of the claims of Scripture outside of the Bible. You're just trusting your Bible. There's no evidence that Jesus ever even existed or John the Baptist or any of that stuff. Eh, wrong. Thanks for playing. Here's your addition to the home game. Josephus was an interesting guy. He was a Jewish historian. He was one of the leaders of the Jewish rebellion against Rome. Um, the problem was when he saw how many Roman legions were marching on him, he decided to switch sides, and he joined the Romans. Actually, he claims that everyone in his company, because they were surrounded, committed suicide, but the poison in him didn't take. Nobody buys that. Um, I would not buy a used car off Josephus. However, historians have noted that his writings, and we have a bunch of them, are accurate. 
by the time he was writing his, his history of the Jews and that kind of stuff, he was now safely a Roman citizen getting paid to write this stuff. And the historian said, yeah, it's accurate. I wouldn't trust the guy in a foxhole, but he, he seems to be a pretty good historian. And guess who he mentions in one chapter? Jesus, who they called the Christ, who was executed by Pontius Pilate, and whose brother James was killed by the Jewish leadership. Before that, he was preceded by someone they called John the Baptizer. This is a guy who lived during the time of Jesus. And he was not a Christian. Then you have the Roman historian. A Roman historian actually writes about the reign of Nero after they finally got rid of Nero and, ran, and drove him to suicide. He said, one of the things, most notorious things that Nero did was persecute the sect we called Christians who follow their Messiah, Jesus, who they claimed was resurrected from the grave after he had been executed by Pontius Pilate. That's a Roman historian. Yes, we do have historical evidence of Jesus and John the Baptist outside of Scripture. It's not true. Well, how accurate is it? Well, let's take a look at Luke 1. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated from the beginning. I also, that's Luke, have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. That's the dude paying for this. So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Now, I made reference to this last week, but it's important that you know. Again, secular historians, you know, will often, you know, come up with all kinds of goofy things to say about the Bible. And then careful archaeologists will go in and prove them wrong. There was a, once upon a time in this country, there was a thing we all had in our homes called magazines. Do you remember magazines? And one, of course, one that was most, the most prestigious and, and was everywhere was Time Magazine. Do you remember Time Magazine? Time Magazine had a story in it that said, actually, as a historian, I can say, for example, there is no evidence that the so-called King David of Israel ever existed. Not one shred of evidence out there. And this is how you know God has a sense of humor. The very next week, they dig up a site dedicated to King David of Israel, thousands of years old. I don't know where that guy's teaching now. I hope it's not at a university. I hope it's just like something that's got a little thing on his top that says student driver or something. Archaeologists like John McRae have noted that when archaeologists have gone back and they've looked at like Luke-Acts, for example, and there's a lot in Luke-Acts, a lot of different places in Luke-Acts, right? I mean, Paul's going, Peter and Paul and the boys are going everywhere. Paul's going to Ephesus and, you know, and Philippi and all this other kind of places. And when they dug these places up, guess what they found? Luke was 100% accurate in every single thing he described. 
Some historians then went to say, well, oh, oh, okay, well, but Luke was a historian, but John, we're, we know John is wrong. And then they started digging up around the temple and around Jerusalem, and even Jewish archaeologists were going, nah, it looks like John was right. You see this all the time. The more we dig stuff up, the more we find out how accurate Scripture is. Matter of fact, we found nothing, no archaeologist anywhere have ever found anything to contradict Scripture, ever. My wife, I keep trying to tell her, my wife has this idea that she would like to be an archaeologist one day. Okay, here's the deal. I, I, having been to Israel and having had professors in seminary who have done archaeological digs, you're not going into a deep cave with a bullwhip looking for some hidden artifact. You are on your knees taking up pieces of rock and going, oh, that's a rock. That's a rock. <laughs> that's, and you do that all day long looking for something in this little pile of dirt. You're not swinging around like Indiana Jones, I hate to tell you. It's pretty boring work, but I'm glad that they do it because again and again it has confirmed Scripture. Well, another objection is this. Scientifically, nothing in the Bible, all these miracles in the Bible and all this kind of stuff cannot be true. We know Okay. Here's the first question I always ask those folks. How did we get the universe? Where did it come from? An honest scientist will say, we don't know. I see. And they have tried to come up with all kinds of weird stuff to come up with how the universe just popped into existence. One day, there was nothing, and then there was everything. And William Lane Craig has argued with these guys all the time, don't you see? You have boxed yourself in a corner. The moment you admit the universe had a beginning, and we know the universe had a beginning, we can measure it. Well, what started it? The most likely argument is God. That's something out time. If time, space, and matter came into existence at the exact same time, well, something that is outside of time, space, and matter had to create it. It's the only explanation. So, I understand that we don't see miracles every day. I wish I had the Holy Spirit gifts that the apostles had. I mean, people were just brushing up against Paul and getting healed. You know, I always thought that would be great until I really started to think about it. As somebody who doesn't even like to hug, if I had that gift, just having, you know, people coming up to you coughing and grabbing at your clothes, I'm not sure I could handle that very well. So God knows what he's doing. But, but Paul seemed to be fine with it. I understand we don't see miracles every day. They didn't in Israel either. That was the point. But if uh, uh, this being that we call God can create the universe like that, 
He can make a storm go away, folks. Not, not too heavy a stone for him to lift. If he can create people out of nothing, he can heal them pretty easily. It just makes sense. But you want to get into the science, let's get into the science. Let's look at one of the things that for years, like Muslims and atheists would say, is that some of the things in the Gospels can't be correct. Well, let's look at one of them. John 19, 31 through 37. It was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken, then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness given an accurate account. He speaks the truth that you may also continue to believe these things happen in fulfillment of the scriptures that say not one of his bones will be broken. They will look on the one they pierced. Now, Christian theologians always saw what was going on with the blood and the water, right? You've probably heard all kinds of sermons about that. The blood representing, of course, the blood spilled for us, the water representing baptism and the cleansing and so forth. But could that have happened? Well, here's what a number of physicians came up with. <clears throat> the difficulty surrounding exaltation leads to a slow form of suffocation. That's how most people died on a cross. They would actually, they couldn't breathe. The way they were strung up, you could not get a breath unless you pushed up on whatever was holding you there, whether ropes or nails. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen, due to the difficulty in exhaling, causes damage to the tissues, and the capillaries begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. The results in a buildup of fluid around the heart and lungs. The collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocate the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. That also explains the blood and the water. John was no scientist. I mean, you got to remember the scientific level that most people were at in ancient Israel was, what's that? Well, give him a good leeching. Drain the blood, balance the fluids, you know, that kind of stuff. How did John get this right? Because he was right. Because as he said, it came from eyewitnesses. It's exactly what you would expect to happen. I could go on and on and on. And I don't expect all of you just to memorize all this stuff. You're going to have to work through it. You're going to have to read regularly. Or you're going to have to watch videos. There's so many apologists out there on YouTube and so forth. 
Our friend William Lane Craig and, and Jay Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, all those guys, you can sit there and watch YouTube videos. You, you know, it just go on and on on training this stuff and background information, how to do this. And there are a couple reasons why you have to. One is we already talked about. If we're going to save the next generation, we need to honor their questions and prepare them for the secular world they're about to go into. That's one. Two, and let me get a little personal here. Every single one of us, no matter how good we have it, will have what they call a dark night of the soul. A day will come because of illness or depression or something, and you will doubt your faith. You will doubt God's love for you. It will happen. If it hasn't happened to you yet, God bless you, but the odds are it's coming. You know, I, I really struggled 10 years ago with a hole in my back that surgeons at that time could not figure out how to deal with. Not being able to sit down for more than a few minutes, having to basically spend two years lying on my stomach. And the one thing you can be sure of with, with this pastor, we may have an opioid crisis, I will never become an addict. And here's how you know why. I am incredibly allergic to most pain medications. I went into the ER once, I was having some really bad pain, and my sister was there, and, and um, she lived locally at that time before moving to Cincinnati. And she told the doctor, who was only half listening, he's allergic to most pain medications. He can't stomach them. And the doctor went, uh-huh, 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 <clears throat> and proceeded to give me pain medication. And I proceeded to do my best Linda Blair ex uh, uh, impression from The Exorcist all over the ER. And the doctor's like, what happened? And my sister, being my sister, looked up and said, you idiot, I told you not to give him pain medication. That's what happens when you give him an opioid or anything like that. That's just what happens. Like, oh, okay. And, but the worst part was wound care. And be, one, because I can't take anything stronger than Advil for pain, I would go into the wound center and they had to cauterize the wound every week. Now, if you know what that means, they mean they had to burn an open wound. And because I can only take Advil, I got to bite on a towel like a Civil War soldier. Why they just... And if you heard a screeching or a yelling, even as far as Franklin Furnace, that was probably me. It hurt. And I remember just laying in my, on my gut one day and being like, I, I mean, I just planted a church four years ago. You know, I had all these people coming to Christ, and now I can't even, I got to lay on my belly like 23 hours a day. And why? And, this, and it went from why to being really kind of, passive aggressive and then and then just being kind of angry but not wanting to admit I was angry with God and what happens is if you swallow anger you get depressed and then you go into a depression and so then you have all of that 
And for some reason, I thought, okay, I've got to do something. I've got to figure out a way to do something. And I'd had a blog at the time, but I didn't pay that much attention to it. The blog was primarily for people at my little church, and so I just, it was a way to put up sermon notes and that kind of stuff, and that was it. <coughs> then I started digging into this stuff. I had a whole rack of books on this stuff that I hadn't touched. They were collecting dust. And I began to work through it, and I began to blog through it, and I found something. That wrestling with this, of defending the faith and wrestling with these questions saved my faith. By every day wrestling with the evidence and seeing, yes, I'm an attorney, I know, this is, this is good evidence. This supports Scripture. This is, the gospel writers got it right. The biblical writers got it right. They got, their descriptions of, of the cities were right. The, their geography was right. Their, everything was right. What they described is scientifically valid and, and, and just on and on and on. And what I found was I was slowly coming out of that depression to the other end. So yes, learning this stuff is important to save the faith of your children and your grandchildren, but the day will come where it can save yours as well. Because it's really hard to doubt something you can't disprove. Even in that depression that would come and go, little by little fading away, I looked to God and I said, I'm angry, but I know it's true. I know your word is true. And if your word is true, that means you love me. And that even the horrible things the people you love go through, it's, you're going through it for a reason. So there's a plan. This stuff is not just for you to argue with people on Facebook about. Please don't do that, actually. I don't know if you know this. If somebody posts something on Twitter or Facebook you don't like, you can just keep scrolling along and ignore it. But you can. I've tried it. It worked. But to have gracious conversations with others, to have these conversations with your children, to arm them so that they can't deny the truth, to equip you all to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, and to help you stave off Satan when he tries to get at your faith. Because if you know this stuff is true, you know God is true, you know his love is true, and we'll all be better off for it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the men and women who spend so much of their time writing books and articles and doing podcasts and YouTube videos to help Christians know that their faith is solid. It's based on evidence. It's based on truth. They can trust it. And if they can trust it, they can escape the snares of, the, of Satan. If they can trust it, they can share it. Help us just to be better disciples. 
you love us so much, you gave your own son to die in our place for our sins so that we may be saved. May we do the effort to be your instrument to save others, including our own children and grandchildren. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoo! It's hot up here. I am, man, I am sweating like a politician connected up to a lie detector machine. All right, um, God bless you. God goes with you. Have a great week. Dad will be back next week, Lord willing. And don't forget about his class tonight. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.